actually to open up your Bibles this morning with me to the book of Psalms this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and I want to bring to you a message this morning that I've entitled Life Beyond Death. This being Resurrection Sunday, it's only appropriate that we dwell upon the glorious, triumphant Christ and look into what the scriptures have to say about our risen, living, interceding Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we think about Easter, we think about the resurrection of Jesus we, in the Bible, we typically think about the New Testament and, and verses such as 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, which says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Or we could think about 1 Peter 1.13, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as pastors are sometimes noted about talking about certain texts, you could say that can preach, right? Either one of those two texts would be just gateways into the halls of the greatness and the grandeur of God. And we could certainly spend our time there or any number of places like that and unpack the rich, sound doctrine that would surely expand our minds and enlarge our hearts in the worship of God. But this morning, I want to look particularly at the Old Testament, and in particular, this psalm, to show you how it escalates upwards to Christ. It has a a Christological thrust, if you will, and I want us to look at this psalm with our eyes looking at it through the lens of Christ. To be sure, David is the author of our text. God is the audience of our text. The Holy Spirit is the inspiration behind the text. Jesus is the subject of the text, and yet we get to receive the blessing, the comfort, and the encouragement from the text. So, first of all, let's begin by reading this together in Psalm 16. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 16, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word says this, Preserve me. O God, for I take refuge in you. I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips." The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. And indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, just help our minds to know you more deeply so that we can worship you in spirit and truth. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to read your word publicly and hear your word, even in our own language. Let us not neglect that or take that for granted when so many don't have that luxury. Father, instruct our hearts and our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first of all, I want to sort of give you a little bit of background about the Psalms before we look at this particular Psalm in detail and some background that should hopefully help establish your confidence in the Word of God and in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom it constantly points to. Luke twenty four forty four, Jesus said there, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And in case you missed that, what he meant there was the entirety of the Old Testament, the entire written corpus of holy writ that must fulfill be fulfilled by himself, and that includes the Psalms. God's word cannot be broken. So first of all, the first Psalm that was ever written was by Moses in Psalm number 90. And that was written about 1,400 years before the coming of Christ. The last Psalm to be written in the book of Psalms was Psalm 126, and that was written about 1,000 years after Moses wrote his. And so there's this a thousand year difference, a millennia, if you will, between the first psalm and the last psalm as they were written. But this particular psalm here was written during the kingly rule of David between 1010 to 970 BC. We don't know really the exact year that it was written or, or what sort of circumstances that David finds himself in here, but yet this is all about Jesus. I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this psalm. A thousand years when this was written, before Jesus arrives, and it's about Him. This alone should hopefully help you in your amazement about God's Word. The the Bible isn't written by a, a group of guys that got together and conspired to control the world. That's one of the farthest fetched things that are put out there about the Bible. It's simply not true. But this should cause you to pause and just be in awe of the worship of God as to the veracity and the truthfulness of Scripture. Now, the designation of this psalm, or the nickname of this psalm, or even the classification, if you will, of this psalm, is that it is a golden psalm, a golden psalm. In fact, one commentator said this, he said, Some have rendered it precious, others golden, others precious jewel, and as the Holy Ghost by the apostles Peter and Paul hath shown us that it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. What is said here of him is precious, is golden, and is a jewel indeed. And when we think about gold, we we typically think about a precious metal, something that's highly valued, right? Uh, First place in the Olympics, they get the gold medal, right? Uh, Most of us have gold wedding rings, They're made of gold. Fort Knox houses 260 
billion dollars worth of gold. It's something that we treasure. It's something that we value. And so why is it that this psalm would be allowed to receive such a high title as a golden psalm? Now listen carefully. It is because this psalm demonstrates for us as Christians that God is our greatest good, our greatest counselor, our greatest inheritance, our greatest joy in this present life. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ allows us to enjoy him as our completely, fully, and eternally in the future. The resurrection of Christ allows us to enjoy him completely, fully, and eternally in the future. And that is worth more than any gold, even fine gold. So let's look at our text this morning, verse 1, if you will. First of all, it says, Preserve me, O God. And so the first thing that we notice is that this is a prayer, right? This is a petition to God. Preserve me, O God. He's crying out to God to keep him alive and to preserve his life. You could say he's behind a, a rock in a hard place. He's backed up in a corner. We don't know what for just yet, but he may be standing on the threshold of death. And so he cries out, God, preserve me, keep me, save me, protect me. And and, then when he says, oh God, here, we get the sense that there's a depth to this plea, an emotion in this petition like none other. This isn't just, Heavenly Father, thank you for this food, amen. This guy's in trouble. This is someone who is pleading to God from the very core of his being. Have you ever been put in a place like that? Have you ever had such devastating news delivered to you that you cried out, Oh God, oh God, preserve me. But look what David's response is. Look what David does. He goes on, he says, For I take refuge in you. Whatever situation he finds himself in, he is looking to God and God alone to be his strong tower, his mighty fortress. He wants to to hide behind the Lord. He's looking for God to be his safe place. Whatever it is that is assaulting him and is coming upon him, he's looking to hide behind God. He's not trusting in politics. He's not trusting in a program. He's not trusting in philosophy. He's not trusting in his physical strength, but he's trusting in a person. He is, his confidence is in God. In other words, what he is saying here is, save me, O God, because I am trusting in nothing else but you. Do you have that same unwavering faith like David wrote here? Do you have a confidence in God like this? Because ultimately, that's all that matters when things come your way. And believe me, they will come your way. Trials are inevitable. Jesus said in John 16, 33, you will have tribulation. Peter, he said in 1 Peter 1, 7, you will be distressed by various trials and tested by fire. James said in James 1, 2, that we will encounter various trials trials. But are you able to say, oh death, where is your sting? Because you are resting comfortably in the arms of your Savior. 
Can I suggest to you that you have probably been under assault more times than you realize and that you need God's constant protection? How often are we assaulted and tempted to sin? Probably from the moment we wake up until the moment we lay down at night. Right? Think about your past week. Think about the grumbling you may have done. Think about the self-pity that you indulged in, or the lust, or coveting, or anger, or resentment, or worry, or despair, or even unbelief. You name it. We are under a constant barrage and assaults to our faith by our flesh, the world, and the devil. And when you did any number of those things, you were looking at that sin to be more satisfying than God. You were trusting in whatever that sin was to be more pleasing to you than your unshakable obedience to God. But that sin never satisfies you. It's a passing pleasure, as Hebrews 11.25 calls it. It's like going to the corner of a room and scratching your back up and down. It doesn't satisfy you, right? you got to get somebody in there to dig it, right? It doesn't quite get it. So what do you do? You go back for more, right? You keep doing it again. So what do you need? You need to look to God to deliver you. You need a protector. John Flavel said, We are as able to stop the sun in its course or to make the river run backwards as by our own skill and power to rule and order our hearts. We need God to rule and guard and protect our hearts. You need to cry out, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And can I confess to you that that as I have studied this these past two weeks that I've had the pleasure of doing and meditating on this, this has been a phenomenal sin killer for me. This has been wonderful when I would be discouraged. I would say these ten words in my mind. And when I would be tempted to become bitter or angry or anything like that, I would lay hold of these words and say them to myself. Preserve me, O God, for I want to take refuge in you. I don't want what that sin has to offer. I want to trust in you to be more satisfying. Shelter me from this. Be my refuge. Memorize Psalm 16, verse 1. Hold on to it. This is what Ephesians 6.16 is talking about when it says that we are to take up the shield of faith and that we trust in God, we trust Him in obedience rather than listening to what these false promises and pleasures of sin seem to just allure us with. And say, David, he cries out for divine deliverance, divine protection, and he seeks for God to be his refuge. But look what he does in verse 2, which is, it's, which is what he's going to do all the way up to verse 8. He doesn't waver in his faith, but he's going to deepen it. He's going to lock his anchor in, and that is he is going to exalt in who God is for him. He says in verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. So first of all, it says, so I said to the Lord. Notice that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means the personal name of God in the Hebrew. That is Yahweh. I said to Yahweh, right? And then he says, you are my Lord, lowercase letters. And that means Adonai. And what he's saying here is that God, Yahweh, is his sovereign, Adonai, right? God is his master, or as Matthew Henry put it, my stayer, 
the strength of my heart. That's pretty, that's beautiful, isn't it? The strength of my heart. God, you are the strength of my heart. You are my Adonai. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Exodus, is my sovereign. And then he says something incredible here in the midst of his struggle. He says, I have no good besides you. Not that he doesn't have good things that come from God, but he recognizes the source of good, and that is God himself. The Bible does say that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or turning in James 1.17, but this goes beyond that. He is saying that you are my ultimate good. The gifts you give, they're great. I love them, I appreciate them, but you are far greater. It's sort of like maybe, hopefully some of you experience this, but when you get married, at least in my experience, I think when you first get married, we're all pretty selfish. We look at our spouses and we think, what can you do for me? You know, what, what do you got for me? What, we look to the things that they can do to satisfy us and they make us happy. And then when they don't do what we think they should do, we get upset, right? And the quarrels and the strife happen, right? But at least in my experience and probably around year five, seven of our marriage, and yeah, I'm probably a slow learner, uh, it was like the lights came on for me. I started to love my wife for, for who she was. I saw the beauty of her heart. I saw how she loved other people. I saw how she was kind and tenderhearted and just beautiful to me on the inside, not just on the out. I saw her for who she was, not what she could do for me only. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he is saying. He is saying, God, you are my good. You are my treasure. Everything that I have that is good is only good because it comes from you, the source of good. Then look what he says in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And the word saints there means holy ones, those made holy positionally by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint in God's economy. It's not just St. Peter or St. Paul. It's not just for the uber-spiritual, but it's those who have trusted in the righteousness of Christ. And most of you men sitting there are married to saints, and you probably just didn't realize it. But in other words, what he is saying here is that of all the people that could possibly bring me joy, of all the people in this world that could make me happy, of all the people that I could think about that I would love to have in my presence and in my company are the people of God, and they bring me joy because of it. It isn't the most popular people. It isn't the richest people, it isn't politicians, the famous or the influential or anything like that, but it's in those who delight in you. Those are the people that I want to be around. Basically, in our modern day vernacular, he's saying, God, your peeps are my peeps, right? The people of God are my people. I want to be around other people who share that same delight in God that I do. But then he turns it on its head in verse 4. And he gives the contrasting side of the statement when he says, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. 
In other words, what he is saying here is that those who have rebelled against God, those who have worshipped false gods, they can have no expectation of peace when they die, but they can expect nothing but sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. And this is those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. And they will have no joy after death except for weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and insulted the Spirit of grace that can have nothing before them except a terrifying expectation of judgment, as Hebrews 10 tells us. And the drink offering of blood here, this is the perversion that the false gods demanded of their worshipers. In the Old Testament, on the altar of God, there was to be a blood atonement for the sins of the people, and then there would be a drink offering of wine prescribed as well. But the demonic worshipers, they would come in and they would take that blood that was offered on the altar, and they would drink it in place of the wine, even though it was strictly prohibited. And so David is saying here, he's like, I'm not even going to pour it out. I'm not even going to touch it let alone even mention the name of their gods on my lips. I don't want to give any credence to it. I will have nothing to do with it because my delight is in the Lord. To do so would be absolutely incompatible with my wholehearted devotion to God. I'm not touching it. Is there some things that you are dabbling in that you know God would not delight in? Is there some things in your life that is, that is hindering your wholehearted devotion to God? Is there some things that you sort of, you're not really sure that God would be pleased with them, with what you are doing? If you have any doubt, if you have any question in your mind, that ought to be the first red flag that is probably something you need to get rid of from your life. If your eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off as Matthew 5. He's not talking about self-mutilation. What he's talking about is for you to take sin seriously, deadly seriously. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, as John Owen once said. Now look at verse 5, at what it says there. Notice how it just keeps reemphasizing and restating the same thing. And that is, is God is enough. God is my all. God is all satisfying. God is all I desire. So he says in verse 5 there, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. So imagine, if you will, a huge buffet table spread out before you, right? All the delicacies in the world you could think of, all the drinks you could possibly imagine. It's better than Duff's smorgasbord on the west side of Columbus, for those of you who might remember that from the 1980s. Or or even better, it's better than the Grace Fellowship Church Buffet, okay? Think of any food or beverage that you could possibly imagine. And he looks over the myriad of food choices that he wants, and he looks and he says that, I want the bread of life. And then he looks over at all the finest wines and all the sweetest drinks and all that types of things, and he sees a cup, and he looks and he says, that one, I want that one, I want the living water. He is basically saying that all that sustains me is God. You are my portion. You are my cup. But he talks about it in a way here that it it is his inheritance. And it's a terminology that's familiar with us today. And that is this. The Lord is what he has to gain at the end of his life. And that's all that should really matter for us. 
We are all near the brink of death. We don't know if we're going to be alive in the next few minutes, or the next week, or the next year. And I cannot tell you how many times I have personally witnessed people who thought, I wish I had just a little more time. I wish I had more time. From three months old, three years old, 30 years old, marathon runners, killing over, and everybody wants more time. I remember a buddy of mine one time, and he ran on a 10-year-old boy. The dad sat him down, made him some pancakes, and the kid choked and died on it in Marysville. 10 years old. We all want more time. But all that matters when you come to the end of your life is this, is do you know God? And does God know you? That's all that matters. Our inheritance isn't a couple hundred acres in the back. It's not that car that's sitting up on concrete blocks in the garage covered. It's not that we inherit an estate, but our inheritance is God. Is that what you're living for? Are you living in such a way that when you die, you gain God? Because the only way that you can gain God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. There aren't many pathways up the mountainside to get to God. Jesus said in John three thirty six, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nothing else is going to matter. When you come to the end of your life, do you know God and does He know you? But then he says also, you support my lot. In other words, what he is saying here is, my life, it's in your hands. Whatever comes my way, I am trusting completely in you. Nothing's going to pluck me out of your hands, not famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword, neither powers, nor principalities. I am solely resting in your sovereign hand. You support my lot. Look at verse 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. And so, what are, what are these lines that he's talking about here? What are the lines that have fallen to me in pleasant places? He's talking about border lines. Lines that have enclosed us in, if you will. He's not necessarily talking about a physical land, right? He's not talking about the boundaries of your property. But he's basically saying the fence that has been hedged, that has hedged me in, that God has supported my lot back in verse 5, is good. It's pleasant. It's satisfying. And why is it pleasant? Because no matter what goes on outside that border, no, no matter what goes on outside the lines of my border, inside I have my portion. Inside my border I have my cup, which is God. I have every thing I need in God. And my heritage is beautiful to me, meaning that it, God has given me in and of himself, and it is beautiful. What could I desire more? What could I have that is better than that? What could I have that is more beautiful than God? Philippians 3.8 says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in these view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I have nothing better, nothing more beautiful, and nothing 
of greater worth than God. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. Verse 7 says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So follow with me for this, with this for just a second here. Remember in verse 1 where he said, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. What is one of the ways that God does that for you? What is one of the ways that God is actually a refuge for you? How, how does that happen? In, in what way is God able to be a refuge for you? Is not the counsel through, of God through his word one of those ways in which God is a refuge to us? Now think about if you had a toddler and they're just beginning to, to walk and crawl and they go over to the edge of the basement stairs, Right? And what's one of the first things that you do, right? You stop and you say, you go to them, you say, no, no, don't do that, baby, right? Come back, don't go over the edge. And it's, it's not like you do absolutely nothing and somehow that baby's going to remain safe. You, you call out to them, you say, don't, no, come back. And it's the same way with God and us, right? God has counseled us through his word, and told us as little babies at the edge of the steps, and he says, no, no, don't do that. Don't go that way. Come back to me. This way is the safe way, right? This way will keep you from harm. This is my word which I have given to you. It is a place of safety for you. It's a refuge. Come follow me. I am the door. My way is the best way because it is the safe way. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Our safety can be brought in. Our refuge is, is, comes to us through God's word. So one of the ways that God acts as a refuge to us is through the counsel of his word. His counsel to us is the path of safety and not destruction. And when he says... I have set the Lord continually before me. He is saying that God is what preoccupies him. God is continually in his sight. He has fixed his eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not just Sunday mornings in front of people, whether it's privately or publicly, whether it's rising up or lying down. He has set the Lord continually before him. The Latin term that we use is quorum Deo, right? Before the face of God. God is right here. He's all I want to see. He's all I need. This is Colossians 3.2 in action where he says he sets his mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And as a result of all that, look where he ends up after the end of verse 8. He's just been like exalting in who God is for him over and over in these last verses, few verses. But look where he lands. In verse 8, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. He started out, preserve me, oh God, right? He's crying out. He started out in a desperate situation. He was in dire straits. He started on the brink of death, crying out to God, preserve me. And yet after exalting in God, being his greatest good, his greatest inheritance, his greatest joy, his greatest counselor in the presence, He's able to now say, I will not 
be shaken. Because this is who God is to me, I will not be shaken. But that's not all. He's not done yet. He's not done ascending to greater and greater heights with God. We started in the bottom of the pit, right? And we're climbing up and out. Look at verse 9. He says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Remember, when you see in the Bible, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? And when he says therefore, he is saying because of everything that I just said in those last eight verses. Because all of this is true, because God is my Adonai, my sovereign, because He is my greatest good, because He is my inheritance, because He's my portion and my cup, because He supports my lot, because He's enclosed the lines around me, because He is my counselor, and because I have set God continually before me, Because of all these things, I will not be shaken. And now, as a result, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Let me ask you, when you have a faith in God like this, what do you have to fear? You know one of the most frequent commandments in all of the Bible is? Fear not. Fear not. When you have all of these precious promises laid out before you, what do you have to fear? You say, Matt, I don't have a faith like that. I don't. I don't have a faith like that. Then let me ask you a couple more questions. If God is for you, Who can be against you? What can separate you from the love of Christ? If he who did did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Beloved of God, could it be that when we walk around discouraged, and we walk around anxious, and when we walk around downcast, and worried, and defeated, it's because we don't recognize the greatness, and the grandeur, and the power of our God? Could it be that we don't ascribe to Him the glory that He's due, when we think so little of His might? But although He's confident now, Because of who God is, he's not done. His happy heart in the present is not his ultimate goal. That wasn't the end. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And in case you just missed that, we went up a whole nother level. Now we're talking after death. And after death, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. 
And if you think heaven sounds boring after reading that, your heart is dead. Fullness of joy, he says. Pleasures forever. Think about the happiest place on earth, right? Disney, right? Whatever. That's the happiest place on earth. That's what they say, right? It's fun. Yeah, you go ride rides and kiss the mouse and all that, right? That will be like a bunch of three-year-olds having a violin concert, okay? Compared to what heaven will be. I mean, that's a pitiful way to describe heaven. But it will be fullness of joy, pleasure forever. But now we've got a key given to us here. And the key is given to us by Peter and Paul in regards to what this is really about. This is where it gets a little interesting. Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, he quotes Psalm 16, and he applies it to the resurrection. Paul, in Acts 13, 35, he quotes this psalm as well. And it is the only two times in the Bible that this psalm is quoted, and both times it is applied to Jesus and his resurrection. So what's going on here? Are are Peter and Paul, are they twisting scripture to make it fit Jesus? Are are they going out on a limb or are they doing some hermeneutical gymnastics here? I think we can confidently say, no. No, they're not. And why is that? It's because our elder brother, our kinsman, always sought to speak the words his father spoke and to do the things he saw his father do, do. And thus... He sought to behold the Lord continually before him, like in verse 8 of Psalm 16. Jesus sought to be perfectly obedient to the Father, and he obeyed the law perfectly, thus trusting in the Father as his perfect counselor, and who himself is called the wonderful counselor, like it does in Psalm 16:7. He was content with the Father beyond measure and didn't have a single desire for other gods and thus trusting in the Father as his portion and his cup, like he did in Psalm 16:5. Jesus did not seek his own glory, but he sought the glory of the Father and thus delighting in the beauty of his heritage, as he did in verse 8 of Psalm 16. And even as he was facing certain death on the cross... Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, and thus he was looking to the Father as his inheritance, as it does in verse 5 again. And we could go on and on and on as time, if time would allow us. But this psalm, It's about Jesus, written a thousand years before his birth. It is a golden psalm, but it is also written for you and I, because our great hope as Christians, our proud confidence is that someday we will be resurrected just as Jesus was. The hope of us Christians is that we will be like him who has gone before us and death is not the end for us, but it's only the beginning. So let us look to the Lord for our joy. Let us rest in him as supporting our lot. Let us trust in him as our counselor and let us rejoice this morning in a faithful and mighty Savior who has conquered sin and death. 
through the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that are found in your word. Preserve us, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Lord, let us write these words on our hearts and trust in you. Let us hope in the day that we are resurrected to be with you for eternity where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay with us for a fellowship meal. I think we have enough food.